welcome to the China and the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. Brought to you by Carnegie China, hosted by Paul Hanley. Welcome back to the China and the World podcast, presented by Carnegie China. I'm delighted today to welcome my colleague and friend Darshana Barua to discuss developments in the Indian Ocean. And the Indo-Pacific. We'll touch on key themes that emerged from the recent Shangri-La dialogue uh, in Singapore, the region's premier security dialogue, of which we both participated. Recent developments in the Pacific Islands, the war in Ukraine, and new trends in India's foreign policy. Uh, let me, before we begin, uh, introduce Darshana. Darshana is a fellow with the South Asia Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Where she leads the Indian Ocean Initiative. Her primary focus is on maritime security in Asia, the role of the Indian Navy in a new security architecture. Darshana was previously a member of Carnegie India, New Delhi, where she served as an associate director and a senior research analyst, and led the center's initiative on maritime security. Darshana was awarded, and I'm not even going to. Attempt to pronounce the French version of this, but it translates to "Personalities of the Future" award by the French Foreign Ministry in 2018, and she was named as the UK's Next Generation Foreign and Security Policy Scholars for 2017. Darshana, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining. Thank you, Paul. Good to be here. Well, it's terrific to see you in person recently at the Shangri-La Dialogue in in Singapore. Um, I wanted to start out by asking you some of your observations of the dialogue. This was my first time. I don't know if you've been previously. I I really thought it was an impressive event, and I give James Crabtree and his team at IISS a lot of credit uh, for putting together really a, a, a pretty spectacular few days. But let me start asking by asking you as a keen India observer, because one of the things that I noticed. Uh, is that India did not send as senior delegation as most of the other countries did, and that was also in contrast to their delegation in 2018, where it was headed up by the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Modi himself. Uh, he attended the forum, and he made headlines in 2018 by saying, "Asia and the world will have a better future when India and China work together in trust and confidence, sensitive to each other's interests." This year. The senior uh, representative was Vice Admiral、uh, Dasgupta, commander of India's East Naval Command,、um, and、uh, he made a comment、uh, at Shangri-La dialogue that China's presence in the Indian Ocean was something that needed to be watched, but was not a major challenge. So I wanted to just start out by asking you what happened with India this year. Why such a difference in levels of participation, both compared to other countries, but also when you compare it with India's previous participation? And what did you think of Vice Admiral Dasgupta's comments that China's presence in the Indian Ocean does not present a major challenge to India? Thanks, Paul. It, it was really great to see you in person too.、Um, I, I had actually been to Shangri-La before, but only once in 2019, and of course after that, it was paused for two years.、Um, mm. And this this year, I also joined. I participated as、um, a young leader, which is the parallel program they run. And we got a、um, perspective into different conversations, specifically in Southeast Asia. And I think being back in the region and on the ground and listening to the conversations 
both of the plenary and the closed door sort of really put a lot of the conversations in perspective, especially yeah. in the last two years, the conversations moved forward quite a bit and we haven't been seeing people in person. So that was really great, actually, um, yeah. uh, being down there. On on kind of Shangri-La, let me start with, you know, because that was a question, India's participation, and it came up quite a few times in there. I think the highest level of participation at Shangri-La was in 2018 when Prime Minister Modi was there. Mm -hmm. And that's where India chose to kind of present its Indo-Pacific vision. That was the first time India had articulated what the Indo-Pacific means to India, what it wants to do, how it plans to work with other countries. And as you mentioned, you know, there was still sort of a more of a uh, conversation around China was far more, it, it was quite different than it is today. And that, of course, is because of the developments along the continental border that has taken over, over in the last two years, which has completely yeah. shifted the conversation on China. So we will definitely not be hearing that conversation as yeah. much. But the idea certainly was there that, you know, India must work together with China and then the development sort of completely shifted that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's 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 true. The the border uh, uh, clashes uh, have had a, a, a pretty significant impact on the relationship, um, the state of the relationship and on it seems on Indian perspectives as well. And in terms of Vice Admiral Dasgupta's comments uh, with regard to China's presence in the Indian Ocean, I mean, how how do you see that? Um, would you would you have answered it that way yourself or do you do you believe that? China's presence does represent certain challenges to India. I I do think China's challenges represent a few uh, some some challenges to India, but on the in but from an Indian military point of view, both on if you were to do the continental, like say the land border versus the maritime border, the navy is the Indian navy is in a little bit more advantageous position vis-a-vis -vis China on at sea than it's at land, simply because of geography, right? That mm. Even though the Indian Army gets more of the defense budget, it is the Navy which is well or better equipped, especially in terms of operational capabilities and experience to engage with a, with the Chinese Chinese Navy in the Indian Ocean region. So I think traditionally, even not, like you wouldn't hear publicly where India acknowledges or recognizes that it is a growing problem. They recognize that it's a development in the horizon, but not that it presents a direct threat because that answer is measured against one thing, essentially. That answer is measured, that one thing is like the red line. Are you, will, is India able to uh, engage with a military conflict in the Indian Ocean region and still secure its position? And that answer is yes at this point in time, mm. because mm. India is based in the Indian Ocean and China still has quite a few capability gaps and geographical disadvantages, right? So yeah. from that point of view, Das Gupta saying, Vice Admiral Das Gupta saying that, it's not a challenge. It's essentially saying that should tomorrow there be conflict, we'll still come out of it victorious. But as a researcher, my question is, is that really the red line? Because that is also the worst case scenario, right? Yeah. So what should the red line be? And should we be worried or looking about looking around, looking at other things and other developments that might minimize or challenge mm. or, or say accentuate the competition leading up to that red line moment? Yes, and I think yeah. in that there is definitely a challenge in in the Indian Ocean region because I also think that is where China's vulnerabilities lie. So we'll probably see a lot of 
these competition uh, mm -hmm. uh, come come into the picture in the Indian Ocean region. Yeah, yeah. So something along the lines: certain things present challenges, certain things don't. But in the end, we can still, uh, you know, protect our 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 interests. Uh, right. it is the kind of response that you're referring to. Um, another area of focus for you, I know, is uh, increasingly is the Pacific Islands. And at the Shangri-La Dialogue, of course, you and I were both in the session where the uh, Minister of Defense from Fiji uh, gave an impassioned speech uh, about the threat of climate change, frankly, to Fiji um, and the Pacific Islands. And he also gave what I thought was the most animated set of responses to a range of questions from the audience. I think I know I asked a question to him. I think you asked a question to him right. as well. I would encourage our listeners to go back and watch that session. I know you can find it on YouTube. It yeah. also included the ministers of defense from Canada and then the host Singapore. It was really a lively and very interesting session. And of course, the Pacific Islands have also been very much a major area of focus in the Indo-Pacific in recent months with the Chinese foreign ministers, um, visits uh, in early June to eight countries in the Pacific Islands uh, in a bid to secure a multilateral pact on security and development. Earlier in the year, in April, of course, China and the Solomon Islands inked a security deal, uh, which looks to boost the uh, Solomon Islands policing capacity, among other things. And then just last week, Australia, Japan, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, the United States announced the Partners in the Blue Pacific Initiative to step up engagement with the Islands Forum and provide over $2 billion in development assistance to the region. Now, I know, Darshana, you just last week, I think, hosted and chaired a very timely forum bringing together 14 Pacific Islands ambassadors and I think Indian Ocean ambassadors in D.C. for a closed-door event. And then in September of last year, you brought together officials and representatives from both the Indian Ocean and Pacific Islands for an Indo-Pacific Islands dialogue, which I think is going to happen again in September. But if you could just kind of give our listeners a sense of what you think accounts for this recent attention uh, that's being paid to the Pacific Islands. How do you see the strategic importance of the region for China and the United States as the two countries uh, appear to be ramping up their competition for influence in the Indo-Pacific and, and tell us a little bit, if you could, about your terrific initiatives that you have underway on, on these topics. Absolutely. Thanks, Paul. Um, so I we hosted the Pacific Island Ambassadors last week for a closed door. Uh, they were in town for engagement with the U.S. government, and we wanted to host them for conversations, um, listen to them, but also prep for the annual dialogue that you just referred to in New York that we started last year, essentially to bring together the... Uh, islands of the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean to talk about geopolitics as we see it. And this actually came as an idea from attending forums like Shangri-La and Raisina and, you know, other, other regional defense and security related conferences where you do not hear from islands or small states that much, but they are very much in the center of the conversation. You were there in Singapore, of course, you uh, heard the conversation so much about like protecting values and offering cred credible kind of sets of whether it was development or whether it was kind of security, where, of course, the alternatives provided to is to a set of smaller states, but those small states, those especially the islands are never represented as much as the bigger mm -hmm. powers are. 
So the idea of the Forum in New York was to actually put them on stage and flip the question to them and ask, how do they think of geopolitics? What are their concerns? How do they view China? What, what is the challenges? And have the bigger powers sit in and listen. And um, mm. the, the Solomon Islands and China agreement has essentially accentuated the entire conversation in the last couple of months. But the problems of the Pacific or the attention to the Pacific, particularly from China, is not necessarily new. The The agreement is that agreement has put that in the spotlight. And I think it goes back also historically, like Solomon Islands was one of the key, um, you know, Guadalcanal, one of the islands in, in, in today's um, uh, Solomon Islands sovereignty was the turning point for the U.S. military in its, in its kind of war against Imperial Japan. So from mm-hmm. historical point of view, that was a turning tide of sort of pushing back on it. And islands have, from a maritime security point of view, islands have always played a great and critical role in, you know, in protecting sea lines of communications and bases and places and facilities and air power and all of that. The mm-hmm. difference today is that today they're sovereign nations, right? And yep. as sovereign nations, they have their own own sovereign choices. They have their economic choices, political choices, military choices, which means that whoever they decide to engage with as their partners, whether it's on the economic front or the military front, could have an impact on their larger, bigger neighbors. And that's essentially what's happened. The Solomon Mm -hmm. Islands choosing to have a security pact with China significantly impacts Australia's immediate neighborhood and by extension to, uh, by extension, the United States, because it's also sitting in the route between, say, Hawaii to Philippines and Japan and Korea, right? So you have, if you have China sitting in Solomon Islands, you have your, what, your biggest competitor and a threat sitting on your waterway connecting you to your allies. Mm. So, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I mean, th- these are very strategic uh, for a, a variety of reasons um, to the U.S., to Australia, New Zealand, um, and clearly now increasingly uh, China. I mean, one of the things you hear in the, in the U.S. debate is, frankly, the U.S. took took uh, took their eyes off the importance there and 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 has not been doing enough. Um, and there seems to be a shift now to try to, to try to make up for, for some of that. Were you surprised to see the agreement between China and the Solomon Islands, or is this something that you've seen coming for a while? And how should we expect this to play out going forward? I, I wasn't surprised. And, and I think we've seen some, some of the similar things come up on the Indian Ocean side. And I think we'll see more of this because it goes back to also a few other things. I think I think the Minister of Defense, Fiji, mentioned in Singapore as well, where he was saying that, look, our problems are not new. The attention is new, right? So what is the attention for in terms of the climate change aspect is he, he he was the first defense minister to get up and say the biggest threat as to me as as a defense minister is climate change. Yeah. Others may have alluded to climate change as one of the threats, but not the threat. Right. But for him, he said it was a non-traditional security issue that occupies my mind in my office as a defense minister. So for the climate conversation is not new. The conversation that is new is is essentially the attention and why why are these pacts and security agreements coming up? Like, and you mentioned that US somewhere took off, took its eyes off the ball, or I think that was, and that's true for a lot of the bigger countries, including India and the Indian Ocean, where essentially it comes from a place of complacency, right? Because you didn't have a competitor. 
when Secretary Blinken went to Fiji in, in, I think, February, if I'm not wrong, but early this year, it was the first time a Secretary of State went to the region in 37 years. But yeah. it wasn't the first time that a Chinese official had made a visit in 37 years. It was probably not even three years. Uh, in terms of presence, visibility, being on the ground, whether it's on the Indian Ocean Islands or the Pacific Ocean Islands, China has been there. So essentially, what has happened is, even for the smaller countries, are obviously island nations are quite naturally tired of being talked at instead of, talk, talk, instead of actually speaking with them. Yeah, and they also recognize the attention is driven by China's interests, right? So I'm not I'm not convinced that the you know that I'm not convinced that the approach is it's 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 complicated because you know how else do you renew our interest in the region without showing up there like now that you are sending your senior officials, but the but the point is also senior officials whether it's Kurt Campbell or Secretary Blinken who who showed up in the region showed up in the region after China showed up, right? So smaller states might also be taking the message that, well, Washington is saying that I am important to you only if I'm important to China. That means should I be grabbing China's attention first? So I'm not sure that it's actually uh, my work. And, you know, you, you, and, and people are not going to forget the absence of the last four decades. Correct. Well, you started these initiatives at a really important time. And obviously, this is something to continue to watch going forward. And you'll have your annual uh, forum, your your islands uh, forum in September. And we look forward to to looking at that as well. Um, Let's turn to your primary area of research, the Indian Ocean. Um, You and your team recently uh, released a a really interesting and I think first first ever of its kind uh, interactive Indian Ocean map. Um, and I've I've been looking at it closely now for for a bit. Uh, called the strategic importance of the Indian Ocean, and you can you know you can go in and see the key islands and the nodes and the hotspots in the region. It goes basically from the Malacca Strait all the way to the Horn of Africa, and uh, it's quite impressive. And you've argued it's it's vital to think of the Indian Ocean as a single geographic space in the Indo-Pacific. So compared to the Pacific Islands, which we just talked about. What, in your view, are the key issues to watch in the Indian Ocean? And what are the benefits of framing the Indian Ocean as a sort of a unified whole as opposed to sort of three distinct regions as it's been traditionally viewed? And thank you for the shout out for the map. It's been quite a bit of work and we're getting good feedback uh, on it. So I hope uh, the uh, listeners here would also go and take a look at that. The reason to... for argue why look at the Indian Ocean as one space is also to because the ocean has been divided, especially after the after the Cold War, into continental divisions of South Asia, Middle East, and Africa, or say like how Department of Defense divides it into Indo-PACOM, CENTCOM, and AFRICOM. So somewhere within the continental troubles or continental challenges of the region, the maritime domain disappeared into it. Just to put one like a brief uh, example on why it makes sense to look at the region as one because a development on the western side, say on the African coast, would have an impact on the eastern side. Is that the China has one overseas base in the world, right? It's in Djibouti. It's on mm-hmm. the Indian Ocean. It's on the African coast. Mm-hmm. But because it's on the African coast, it was kind of put. It was classed as say an Africa development rather than an Indian Ocean development. But how is China going to get to Djibouti? It has to cross the Indian Ocean. It has to go through that region, right? So to be able to and to be able to get there, the distance is vast. So which are the other countries? 
say it's working with who are the other players, what are the new collaborations, the islands are now independent nations with sovereign decisions and priorities, what's happening in the Red Sea, what's happening there, there are three main choke points in the Indian Ocean region. Three of them are part of the kind of the most strategic oil transit choke points in the world, one of them being the number one, which is uh, straight up Hormuz. So how do these developments and different uh, geopolitical kind of landscape in the in the different pockets of the region matter and have an implications and to be able to draw the trend lines to be able to see what is actually happen, happening you have to see the region as one and from the maritime aspect and not looking out from the continental side of it because if you look at the maritime say even from South Asia point of view or Africa point of view you're going to limit yourself to that immediate waters around the continental around the peninsula or the coast but there's yeah. wide spaces of water between them. That is where the competition is going to play out. And do you find, uh, you know, Washington, D.C. or other quad capitals, are are they beginning to look at it this way? Or do they still lump the, you know, um, are, are they beginning to lump the Indian Ocean and the Pacific into one unified re- re- region, as you're suggesting? No, they're not, and that's. I think that's 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 a big challenge because, you, and from Washington's point of view, I think Washington does talk about like if you look at the U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy, the Indian Ocean is in the entire document mentioned twice. One is to say that the Indo-Pacific includes the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, and the second is I think it refers to it in some aspect of India and the Indian Ocean, but it essentially is not. If I'm not wrong, the last time Washington had an Indian Ocean strategy was in 1978. I haven't been able to find anything recent. I found that document in the archives for uh, while doing research for the book that I'm writing. But essentially, that division hasn't hasn't been worked out because again, you know, bureaucracies and and divisions and desks have gotten so used to looking at it in different. Like mm-hmm. Sri Lanka and Maldives will be covered under say South Asia, and say Madagascar and Seychelles will be under Africa, right? But mm-hmm. is are the two desks talking to each other? No. Not yeah. necessarily because they're two different continental aspects. So they say, so you think the problems of Africa and South Asia are different, right? Yes, problems of Africa and South Asia are different. But the challenges of the Indian Ocean are the same, whether it's on the Western Indian Ocean or the Eastern Indian Ocean. Yeah. Well, yet again, another initiative under your program that I think is poised to make significant contributions and, and something to keep an eye on. So congratulations on the map and look forward to your work on this going forward. Um with our remaining time, I got just a couple more questions. Um, this, you know, these days, uh, not asking a question about Ukraine doesn't seem right. So, let me uh, touch on you know Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, and you know it's had major impact on international politics, not only for U.S. and Chinese foreign policy, but also India's international strategy. And I will tell you that you know I've been in Singapore for the last ten months, and the perspective that I hear from a lot of Southeast Asians uh, is, hey, look, uh, they ask me as an American, you know, seems to us that China and India have taken a very similar approach to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Neither have condemned Russia. Modi and Putin, in fact, issued a joint statement, a fairly lengthy one, uh, after a visit to Moscow by Prime Minister Modi in December 2021. So not, not long ago. Of course, there's the Chinese joint statement of February 4th, which everyone talks about. Uh, and of course, today, both are both countries continue to import large sums of crude oil from Russia at steep discounts. So a lot of uh, Southeast Asians say to me, you know, is the U.S. pulling its punches, punches with India, but sort of 
know, kind of giving India a go, but, you know, really putting pressure on China. And of course, just last week, China, Russia, India convened the virtual BRICS summit to discuss potential for greater economic cooperation between the group of emerging economies. So broadly, how do you see that? Now, how, how would you respond to assertions that India and China's stance on Russia's invasion of Ukraine are just very similar? And then what impact do you think the war in Ukraine is having on debates in India regarding its foreign policy, and in particular, its relationship with Russia, as India tries to navigate this China-Russia-U.S. triangle? I think the Russia conversation certainly has, uh, you know, really encouraging India to think through its Russia partnership, but it's also not a partnership that I see. I mean, of course, everybody's aware on on why in the India-Russia relationship, you know, just quickly in terms of in the 70s, where India was looking for assets and to build up its capabilities and defense capabilities that came to the United States. The United States was not able to offer what India was looking for because it's kind of commitment was to Pakistan, so India went to Moscow. So there's a lot of actually also historical dependence and also historical support towards India's growth, which was, from Delhi's point of view, was not supported by Washington because priorities and ge- geography, geographical importance at that time was correct, uh, was different. What is, what is different now, however, is that the India-Russia relationship is very important for India's own defense imports as well as, and it's not just the imports, but a lot of the assets and the platforms that India currently uses, like say India's current aircraft carrier, it is an old Russian aircraft carrier, right? So there's a lot of, it's just so intricately tied that it's going to be harder to switch off overnight Mm. because of the dependency on that. But that does not mean that India has not, had not, even before the Ukraine you know, war, India had started that conversation. That's why you see buying PAs from, from the United States or Rafale jet fighters from France or, you know, the talking to different countries, expanding, making India. So that conversation had already started. I think this Ukraine, uh, the crisis, the war has accelerated that conversation and to say that India, when it's going across the world and saying that, you know, we are a democracy value-based and we want to see rules and norms, it cannot really support Russia on something that is so blatantly wrong, right? Mm. But mm. at the same time, you have to kind of think about China sitting on a northern border and the assets and the and and mm. and the and kind of the defense hardware that you need, which is supplied by Russia. So yeah. it's very much a strategic, a very much a practical realist approach into keeping that that this dependency is not going to go away overnight. The process has already started. The process is going to be accelerated now. But India also, if you actually go through the go through the kind of the uh, speeches at the UN, the first speech versus kind of one of the, you know, over the last couple of weeks or months that has changed, it has changed pretty drastically from initially being like vague to now saying that, you know, this, this has to end, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. India also has been able to use, India has used its kind of conversations with or its lines with Moscow to create humanitarian corridors to bring students out, not just his own students, but also students from other countries, mm. sent humanitarian aid, whichever way it can without naming it that, okay, Russia is wrong for this war. That's the only thing that has stopped from it, sets everything else. I know the conversation around oil is a whole conversation as well, but I think it's something that frustrates Delhi too, because I think you can hear Jashan, but the foreign minister, even when he was in Washington, talk about it and say, and I think he said, like, you know, what India imports from Russia in a month is what Europe imports in an afternoon. So yeah. essentially, 
Mm. What India is saying that yes, we are, but then we know not the only country, and you know Delhi has its own perspective on this. Yeah. But I'll say this in terms of that, you know, the conversation on Russia has certainly accelerated, and today India's problem is China. That is the biggest threat. Mm. Whether no matter what happens, where the problem on its border with China is its biggest issue, and the convergence on that with Washington, with Tokyo, with Canberra, with with Paris remains. And the yeah. Indo-Pacific is important, and Russia's, you know, Russia not accepting the Indo-Pacific and looking at the Indo-Pacific as something more threatening does not work for Delhi either. And you hear a lot in the United States about <clears throat> efforts to help India move away from such a uh, strong dependence on Russia for military equipment and armament, especially vis-a-vis that it needs vis-a-vis China. I mean, do you see that as a strong possibility that this? situation with Ukraine will provide the sort of motivation and 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 drive for that kind of effort to happen where the United States and other European countries begin to provide India with the kind of military armament and equipment it needs so it doesn't have to depend so much on Russia. I think I think that has been a conversation with in, in the US I mean now that I live here and I hear more about the conversations coming out of or happening at the Hill and the power of Congress here. When you look in the U.S. foreign policy on the outside, sitting outside, I mean, you're aware of it, but I think we don't necessarily hear it as on a daily basis as you do here because of, say, direct interactions. And there are people at the Hill who have serious questions about, do we align with India on values? Should we be sending or selling stuff to India if we can't even agree on something as straightforward as if this is a war or not mm. right so i'm so there is the india watchers in washington the india kind of you know supporters who understand these problems and i think that includes state and dod especially people who've been working on with india for a very long periods of time but i think i, I think there will be a little bit of push and pull where people have been quite disappointed with india's stand and with 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 on on un but at the same time i think Washington is also pretty practical. And from Washington's point of view, India is also an important player in the competition with China, especially because of geography. So I think you'll find the balance and it will make make progress. But even going beyond the Congress question, it's the question of essentially we India and US haven't had this level of collaboration where you can actually feel comfortable to share high-end technology. And that is what India needs. Well, terrific. It's uh, it's great to talk to you on the podcast, finally. We look forward to hosting you again. Uh, great to see you at the Shangri-La Dialogue uh, uh, earlier this month. Uh, congratulations on your, on your work uh, with the Indo-Pacific Islands Dialogue, and I look forward to that in September, and on the Indian Ocean with your uh, interactive Indian Ocean map. And so look forward to following you and all of your work uh, and your initiatives. And thank you again for joining the China World podcast. Thank you so much, Paul. This was fun.